0: Let's pray. <clears throat> God, before we ask some specifics about how we spend these next few minutes, I want to uh, lead our church this morning in praying for the churches in this community. Uh, we, um, I don't want to be specific and surgical about a church this morning, as we typically are. Lord, I want to lift up all of the uh, Christ adoring. um, Trinity-preaching, Bible-exposing churches in this community. Lord, I pray for the pastors of the churches in this community. I um, am familiar with some of the struggles that most pastors or many pastors may face in a desire to be relevant, desire to be edgy, uh, interesting, um, applauded, Lord, I pray that you would set some dudes free from that. I pray that you would um, remove those chains and encourage God's leadership and the churches in this community to be faithful, exposing your word, verse by verse, every part of it, the full counsel. Lord, I pray that in that, that your people in this community would be equipped with a healthy diet, with a big picture understanding of who we are as the saints in this community. And Lord, I pray the result of that is that the church would be salty, bright, and aromatic in this community across the board. It would be a unique, bright, and shining place, a city on a hill. That's a big prayer, Lord. I know there's lots, uh, lots of dynamics there that almost make that prayer uh, seem bigger than worth praying. But Lord, I pray it anyway. In the last eleven years, twelve years, Lord, I've heard of other churches that are now praying for other churches, and I'm encouraged. That the long, long, decades long history of competition and spirit of competition between churches in our community, I'm encouraged believing that it's dying. And I pray a quick and violent death for the rest of it. Lord, we lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray for growth. We pray for health. We pray that they can't find places to seat those who are being drawn to your Son. And Lord, we pray that as they're coming, that they are eating a healthy diet. Lord, I'm thankful for the opportunity to lift them up this morning and to represent our people in leading us in this prayer. It's a big one. Lord, I pray for this church this morning as well. I pray for what's in store in the next 10 years of membership renewals should your son not return between now and then. as I look back and consider all that you've done in the last 10 years of renewals and think about all that you've done, I'm excited at the thought of what's in store for the next 10. Such health, um, deep roots, uh, steady faith, consistent shepherding. It's not anything that we could have done, but it's something that you've done. And Lord, I know at the same time that we are so far from arrived, that we have so far yet to go, I pray that you will continue to work that in us. Use this time, Lord, to equip us. And pray these things in Christ's name, amen. This is our 10th membership renewal. I wasn't sure about that this week, and this morning I went back and looked at my old sermons, and sure enough, 10 years ago... March of two thousand and six was our first renewal. We became a church and constituted the August before that, so it wasn 't quite a year point between August and March, but March of twenty or two thousand and six was our first renewal Some of the that it, 's funny to consider about whenever or to think about whenever we first started talking about this idea of membership renewal as a church leadership at that point the leadership I use that term very loosely because Uh, Early on, I was the only pastor. There weren't other pastors yet called and appointed. I had a group of people that I met with in the church uh, to help me work through some some decisions and help me work on a constitution and um, bylaws and things like that. And one of the things we considered early on was this idea of membership renewal. And I had this thought inside my head, how can we possibly pull this off? How can we get away with asking people to recommit to something? I really honestly had that thought deep down. Thankfully we pressed on, but early on, I've had that thought: How can you possibly grow a church and expect real commitment at the same time in our context? As a new church planner, 12, 13 years ago, I confessed that I had that thought that, man, I don't want to ask too much of people. Thankfully, the marine in me, and maybe the Holy Spirit, more importantly, pressed on and said, "Let's ask a lot and see who rises to the occasion and sees a lot in here and wants to be part of it. So this is our 10th renewal, and this morning I thought it would be fitting for us to spend our time dealing with a question that I get a lot, that Scott deals with a lot, Brad probably deals with, many of you may deal with from time to time, what's the big deal about membership? Why do y'all take membership and this renewal thing so seriously? we're going to deal with that in these next few minutes. I've been reading a book this week called Church Membership by a guy named Jonathan Lehman. I highly recommend it. It's a wee book. I mean, look how I've only gotten about half the way through it. And as is typical with my book reading, I finished the first half of many books. This is one of those books that I aim to finish, but at this point, I've only gotten about half of the way through it. But one of the things that I appreciate that that uh, Jonathan does in this book is he seems to, in some way, read our mail about our context. And apparently, there's nothing new under the sun. And what's happening a lot in Greenville is not the only place that it's happening. Because here's what he's, what he's describing of the view of church or how he characterizes the contemporary view of church. He says, Most people in Western societies lump churches into the same category as soccer clubs and charity organizations. Churches are one more kind of voluntary association, we say. Alternatively, we regard churches as a service provider, like a mechanic who services your soul or a gas station that fills up your spiritual tank. He does a lot more to develop that sort of context, and it just seems strangely familiar as he described that, that, you know, I've seen that in the last 13 years in Greenville in a hyper-churched context with what I believe to be, at one time I heard, I don't know if it's true or not, more churches per capita anywhere else in the the world, maybe. When we first moved here, there were 98 Christian churches on the uh, Chamber of Commerce website serving about 25,000 people, 98 Christian churches. And yet, when I made some phone calls and looked into who's actually showing up on Sunday mornings, we found at that time, I don't know what the figures would be now, about 3 to 5% of that 25,000 were actually gathering with a local church. And this is the Bible Belt? Maybe we should call it the church belt, because it's not the Bible Belt or at least the way it's playing out here. There's lots of churches, but not a whole lot of participation. Maybe they're connecting to what he's talking about here, just viewing it as a local service provider, and I don't really need the services right now, so why go? Nobody's sick. Nobody's dead or near death. Nobody's lost a job. No marriage is in crisis at the moment, so what do we need church for? He lists some symptoms of this view, and some of these symptoms I think are going to get a little bit uncomfortable for some folks in here. And I remember one of the first conversations I ever had with Key Walker. Key and Holly aren't here this morning. I often point out Key's western attire. It has nothing to do with his western attire this morning. When they first started visiting, I, I met him out in the, the, the other building where the coffee area is. And I said, hey, Key, glad you guys were here this morning. He said, man, yeah, we were glad to be here. He said, we like it here. We're, we're really comfortable. And I said, I don't, I, don't know. I don't want you to be comfortable. Our goal at Crosspoint is not... To make you comfortable. (laughs) And sometimes true things make you very uncomfortable. So if you're very uncomfortable in the next few minutes, then maybe it's the Lord's doing. Maybe I'm not strategically sending you a surgical ping this morning, a sniper round, but maybe actually the Holy Spirit has ordained what I'm about to share with your circumstance, that you're here to hear this. Here's the list of symptoms that he provides. First of all, Christians can think it's fine to attend a church indefinitely without joining. It's a service provider. Christians think of getting baptized apart from joining. Christians take the Lord's Supper without joining. I put in there, indefinitely, without joining. Christians view the Lord's Supper as their own private, mystical experience for Christians and not as an activity for church members who are incorporated into body life together. Christians don't integrate their Monday to Saturday lives with the lives of other saints. If you just view it as a place you go that's just another entry on your schedule each week, well, this is something we do, but it's not who we are, then you could fall prey to that symptom where you don't integrate your lives with those of others between Sundays. Christians assume they can make a perpetual habit of being absent from the church's gatherings a few Sundays a month or more. We're doing pretty good right now. I'm not sure we really need the service. Here's the next one. Christians make major life decisions like moving, accepting a promotion, choosing a spouse, etc, without considering the effects of those decisions on the family of relationships in the church, or without consulting the wisdom of the church's pastors and other members. People hear about things like that at Crosspoint. Or they hear in our community that you mean you talk to your pastors about someone you're going to marry? You talk to your pastors about where you might move to and what job you might take. That sounds strong. It It sounds like the church. Here's the next one. Christians buy homes or rent apartments with scant regard for how factors such as distance and cost will affect their abilities to serve their church. Hmm. Christians don't realize that they are partly responsible for both the spiritual welfare And the physical livelihood of the other members of their church, even members they have not met, when one mourns, one mourns by himself, is a symptom of viewing the church the way Western civilization, Western culture does. When one mourns, one mourns by himself. When one rejoices, he or she rejoices by themselves. I encourage you to read this book, to grab it. It's an easy read. If you have some questions about what church means, what, it's, what it should be about, I think this, this book nicely handles biblically passage after passage that shows the contours and shape of church membership throughout, our, throughout the New Testament. The word is not in there about joining a church, member, being a member of a church, but it's all over the pages. He does a nice job of handling that. If I were to describe the biggest problem in our church context in one word, it's a a phrase that I thought I coined until I I, I mentioned it to somebody and they said, oh, somebody wrote a book titled that. I can't even remember what the book is called or who wrote the book, but I came up with what I thought I came up with, a novel idea that turns out is not a novel idea. My only novel idea in my whole lifetime is churchless Christianity is what we're seeing in our context. Churchless Christianity. The notion that I can love Jesus and have an affection for Jesus but not be part of a local church at all in a meaningful way. So what we're going to do this morning, I think, is appropriate and fitting. We're going to spend our morning looking at what God says about what the church is and what God can show us in just a few, four little snapshots. That's all we're going to do. It's not going to be heavy exposition of any of these particular passages. It's going to be light exposition of four passages, two of them from the Gospels and two of them from the book of Acts. If you'd like to, I would like for you. Actually, I would encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 16. As you're turning there, I wanted to help you with a little bit of word study. I like to do a word study when I'm considering a passage to preach, and it's fitting to consider doing a word study on the word "church." In the Greek, is the word "ekklesia." The word "ekklesia" is used a number of times in the New Testament. The Greek it was the original language of the New Testament. You would expect that you're going to see that word used a number of times. It's also used a couple of times in the Greek Old Testament. There is a, something called the Greek, or something called the Septuagint which was the Greek Old Testament and it's a nice place to go to see where people were sort of transferring thoughts between Old Testament context and New Testament context that's hard to bring out because of the translation. But you can find the word ecclesia used a couple of times in the Greek Old Testament to, mean the, to refer to the congregation or the assembly of Israel. Okay, you could, you could just paraphrase it and say, referring to the people of God in the Old Testament. Usually they were referred to as a synagogue, the assembly in the congregation, but there are a couple of occasions where it was referred to as ecclesia. The word can be broken down into two pieces. First is ek, which means out or belonging. And the second part of the word is the word in Greek, kaleo, which is the Greek word for called. The word could be translated to mean belonging to the called or the called out, is who ecclesia are. These four snapshots really are going to be as simple as the first two references to ecclesia in our New Testaments in Matthew 16 and 18, the third reference, which is in Acts chapter 4 and 5, and then well on into a few chapters over into Acts, in Acts chapter 11 are the four places we're going, Matthew 16, Matthew 18, Acts 4 and 5, and Acts 11. And all we're going to do in these next few minutes is just look at the context surrounding the use of the word and see if we together can glean some meaning of what does church mean, what's it about, what's it supposed to be about. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, Replied. Is anybody surprised that Simon Peter replies, the one to reply? <laughs> Simon Peter replied. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This passage, specifically in verse 16, where Peter replies with the words, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, is one of the most profound moments in our Gospels. It's an event that's recounted in three different Gospels, all but John The words could be translated verbatim, you are the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. Now, that may sound clunky and clumsy, and that's why it's not translated like that directly on our pages. But what you can draw out of that, first of all, is the use of the, the definite article. I'm going to read it again with emphasis on that and consider how profound this confession was coming from a guy who seldom had wise and insightful things coming out of his mouth who is the best at blurting out the dumbest things in the world, here for a moment actually nails something. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the God, the living one. The use of the definite article is profound because he's saying, you're like no other. There are others of all different kinds of sorts of things. But in regards to Christ, you're the only one. In regards to sons, you're the only son. In regards to God, he's the only God. In regards to living ones, he's the living one. The living one. It's a profound moment where he confesses that Jesus is the Christ. A few observations I want to just deal with here for a moment. First of all, I have to do with his confession. And second of all, I have to do with the keys that were given to the church. First, the confession. His important confession here is more about the what than the who. See, the Catholic church focused on the who. The Catholic church made a big deal out of Peter here and in fact identifies Peter or believes Peter to be the first pope. I'm gonna build my church on you, Peter. But Protestants over the years identify with where I would hope that you would identify, realizing that it's not building that on Peter as a person. Because if you read the rest of the book of Acts and then the rest of the New Testament, Peter just sort of fades out. I mean, he's faithful, but there's not a big deal made out of Peter specifically. The big deal and what's being built on here is his confession. His confession in this moment. He's like the proto confessor. Confessing you are the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. An important moment in the life of the church. And you could say it's the beginnings of the church where somebody says, you are the one. You are the promised one. And Jesus is telling Peter, I'm not building it so much on the dude. I'm building it on the confessors. I'm building it on the confession." Christ would build an assembly of these confessors with this same most confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. And Peter's confession is just the identifying mark of this assembly of the called. Now let's deal with the keys, just a brief comment about the keys. This assembly apparently and what he does here in passing the keys off to this assembly and those confessors He's given great power and great authority to this people. And nothing, in fact, can prevail against it. He's giving those confessors, the assembly of the called, the assembly of the confessors, the keys to an eternal kingdom. And they're given to the church. The keys of an eternal kingdom are given to the church. In fact, it's so profound here. Look at what's said. What's bound among you will be recognized as bound in heaven. And what's loosed among you will be recognized as loosed in heaven. He gives this power and authority to them collectively and does it so in chapter 18, just a couple chapters later, collectively. It's not about Peter. The keys have been given to the church. Some of those examples that are common and familiar to us about occasions where a binding takes place, where we would hope and pray and expect that it's recognized in heaven, would be a marriage, where a church says, This man and this woman are now one. I pronounce you husband and wife. Recognized up there. Whatever's bound on earth is recognized as bound in heaven. Ordination would be recognized. Ordination that took place here would be recognized there. Laying hands on someone and praying over them as a pastor and elder of the church would be recognized in the high court of heaven. That's another example of binding. Another example of earthly binding would be baptism takes place all the time here in this church where what happens here is recognized in the high court of heaven. Profound authority. And then what we often don't want to talk about or if we talk about it and you hear about it and you don't know anything about it, you might hear and go, that sounds alarming, where some, some loosing actually takes place. Where someone is actually removed from the church because they are now renouncing their faith in Christ. Or they are moving in an absolutely unrepentant talk to the hand up yours way. Where they're removed and that loosing takes place. Apparently what happens here is recognized in the high court of heaven. Such power. Such authority, it ought to make all of us swallow hard. That's given to the church. Now, some application in reverse order. First, dealing with the keys. Second, we'll deal with the confession. But first, dealing with the keys. Realize that this application that's given to the church, or this power and authority that's given to the church, is not given to anything or anyone else. The only thing that even comes close is the authority and power that's given to the government. Listen to this passage from Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. Okay, think policemen. Just to make it real practical. Let's think about a policeman. It's carrying a badge, wielding a gun. We know they have certain power and authority. And realize that policeman or that governor or that president, whoever it might be, there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Okay, God has given tremendous authority And power and influence to our governing authorities. We should agree and acknowledge that. The passage continues. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what's good and you will receive his approval. Listen to this next verse. For he is a servant for your good. But if you do wrong be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain the sword of judgment in our context has been given to those governing authorities they've been given power and authority but they weren't given the keys to the kingdom a given sword but the keys were given to us the keys were given to us the church has this this otherworldly, eternal kind of authority and power. The greatest authority on earth has been given to the assembly of the confessors, the church, not to any nation, not to any government, not to any earthly authority. Has this type of power and authority ever been given? It's been given only to the church. Now here's the reality. Our culture does not view this kind of power and authority among the church. It doesn't. And here's the bad news. Our church culture doesn't even view this kind of authority among the church. Man, church folk don't even view the church as having this kind of authority. I want to ask you this question just to consider a thing about. Where does the authority of the church stack in your worldview? A little confession for you. I try and abide by the law of driving. It's not a bad confession, because I do. I mean, I, I, mean for the most part. I, I stayed at kind of a little margin above the speed limit, but it's like a couple miles an hour of the speed limit. I might not even be saying this. Some of y'all be like, man, you shouldn't be confessing this. I, I'm just telling you, I, I'm just being really honest. I'm not going to stop being honest when we start talking about speed limits. I don't drive really fast, but I also don't drive 55 on the money. I'm not a legalist. Let's just set it free. I'm not a legalist not a Pharisee, when it comes to driving. God. Amen. But let me tell you something. When a policeman pulls behind me, man, I start sweating. And I'm talking, I'm sweating when I'm driving the speed limit, when I'm driving around town. I start thinking, okay, is my inspection current? Are my brake lights working you know, how does, my, how does the health of my vehicle look? You know, Am I happiest citizen? I'm thinking through the whole list of everything that I could possibly do wrong, and I'm hoping that I'm not doing any of those things wrong because I seriously recognize policemen as, as an authority. My heart races just seeing one behind me. Does my heart race that way when Brad and Scott need to talk to me about something that I need to deal with? Or when Jeff Willingham or Morris Bean or one of the other deacons says, I need to talk to you about something. Does my heart race like that where I recognize the authority of the church? I'm going to make it even a little more personal. I don't know who the 23% are that haven't gone online to do your membership renewal yet, but I just want to ask that 23% this question. Did you turn your taxes in? A couple days ago, they were due, right? What, yeah, two days ago? Wasn't that right? April 15th? 18th? Is it extension or something? Oh, this year. Psh, you still got time, but I bet you'll get them in. I mean, I, it's kind of a lighthearted question there. I'm not being ugly about doing your membership renewal. I know online stuff is cumbersome and clunky, and well, just the church. Psh, psh, I might get to that, or I might not. I bet you did your taxes. Man, just think about it for a moment. Where does the authority of the church stack in your worldview? Do you realize the keys have been given to the church? Not to the policeman. He's got a sword, and it's a big one. It's an important thing. But he wasn't given the keys to an eternal kingdom. Here's the reality about the early church. The early church, the early assembly of the called and the confessors... Viewed themselves as ambassadors in chains for the sake of the gospel, and they were willing to defy even earthly authority because they saw the kingdom as a greater authority. Do you? Now as to the confession, Peter's confession is a wonderful confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. And the church is the assembly of these confessors that join Peter's proto-confession. Just for a moment, I want to consider what's happened among us in the last year. Since our last membership renewal, Hank Cardwell has said, You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. You are the Son of the God. You are the living one. Jack Fiesel joined him. Olivia Sutton joined them, Audrey Lane, Nate Petzold, Sam Sadler, Parker Scott, Chloe Fulp, Bailey Holloway, Kay Taylor, Emma Shepard, Cody Fuller, Link Brown, and Amanda Carroll join Peter In saying, you are the Christ. You are the son of the God. You are the living one. Man, we got to enjoy that. And what's behind each of those are a bunch of faithful moms that were saying it in dens and living rooms and kitchens. Hey, guess what, Nate? He is the Christ. The son of the God. The living one. Lots of confessors behind each of these that did it publicly in this last year. People confessing that Christ is the Messiah in homes. There were those that confessed, like Linda Cardwell's mom, to the guy cutting his yard, saying, do you know the Lord? Do you know that he is the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one? Man, we should celebrate that. And then Cody follows suit and says, yes, he is. Yes, he is. There were other confessions among us in this last year. There was a confession of a mom who watched her son die and buried her son and worshiped while it happened and said, yep, he is the Christ. He's the son of the God, the living one. There's a wife, mother, and lawyer that ran for public office. And during the election, she worshipped, testifying that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Also in this last year, a Facebook post that just stood out to, out to me is something that I've rem- I remembered. is recent too. Where a wife confesses that against all odds... The odds stacked against her and her husband that they are happily married, enjoying each other, and enjoying Christ. Saying in their lives and saying in their testimony that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the God, the Living One. In this church, they're struggling single moms, confessing in the way they're just plotting and just moving on that Christ has been and is a great husband In and through their trial. In this body, there's a family that has gone through some of the most terrible things in the past year, and I won't name them by name, but they have been holding fast and confessing Christ in and through this trial. In this last year, there have been couples holding to and testifying to Christ in childlessness. And only as an act of worship. Blessing others by putting on a baby shower while they're grieving. Holding to Christ, saying, He is the Christ, the Son of the God, the Living One. Also, in this last year, there's a family, the Carols holding fast to and confessing Christ through heart troubles. And I mean real heart troubles, like grave, death facing heart troubles. What a great year of confession we've had. What a great year. The church is the assembly of the called. With a common confession, with otherworldly authority. And it's assembly of real people with real names like Peter. The proto-confessor who blurted out lots of stupid stuff. But nailed it when it came to Jesus. Hank joins his ranks. Jack, Olivia... Audrey, Nate, Sam, Parker, Chloe, Bailey, Kate, Emma, Cody, Link, Amanda, Barbara, Kelly, Lindsay, Sheila, Jessica, Scott, Christian, Neil, Lauren, Gary, and Shelley. Together saying, you are the Christ, the son of the God, the living one. Turn to Matthew 18. This is the next reference to church in our Bibles or in our New Testaments. We didn't do anything real crazy this morning. We're just looking at the reference. It's the next reference. First reference was, first time it's referred to in our New Testaments was in Matthew 16. The second time it's referred to in our New Testament is in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. shall be loosed in heaven. There's that phrase again. It's not given just to Peter, but it's given to the assembly of the confessors. The keys were given to the church. Some observations here. First of all, one sins against another all the time when you do life together. You do. It happens. And most offenses should be overlookable. Let me just acknowledge that. Some of you, if you're like me, that is a really short list. Ask Christy. I have a very short list of overlookable offenses. Easily offended, too much to my shame, and hopefully in time the Lord has changed that. And there's lots of changing yet to do. But ideally, among us, we've got a big list of overlookable offenses with one another. But there are occasions when the offense is too great to overlook. It happens. It just happens. So in this case, this passage gives us some real goods. Here it says, one, if one sins against another among the assembly of the confessors, and the sinned against goes to the sinner, he should go to them first alone. And there's a great chance that, that the one that, that transgressed, the one that sinned against the other, will listen and will. what's implied there is repent and the brother will be gained. Then, though, if that person does not repent, he or she goes with one or two others. And then the chances are great that the transgressor will listen and the brother will be gained. However, if that transgressor is still unrepentant, the matter is brought before the assembly of the confessors. It says it right there. Nobody made it up. Nobody's trying to be ugly. Nobody's trying to come up with something that just sounds real heavy and weird. It's right there. It's the second reference to church in our New Testament. And Jesus said it. It's in red letters. It's His plan. That if somebody's unrepentant, it comes to the point eventually where they continue in unrepentance. It comes before the church. Just just make a little mental note. So far the only references dealing with church in our new testaments deal with confession deal with power and authority and deal with accountability it's right there so let's just consider for a moment a few, few other things that we see in this passage first of all we see a second of all we see a willingness to involve others as necessary there's a wise and loving progression to help the unrepentant That's part of church. And then eventually, if that person continues unrepentance, it lands in the lap of the entire church family to appeal to the unrepentant. Now, what's implied here, what we can see, hopefully you can see very clearly the contours and shapes of church membership and church involvement with one another, is hopefully you see responsibility to each other and to the assembly as a whole. There's no place here in the church for this. If your brother sins against you, go to another church and vacate that difficult situation because doing the Christian thing means not not making waves. I stumbled all over that. I'm going to say it again because I want you to get it. There's no place in the church for if your brother sins against you, go to another church and vacate that difficult situation because doing the Christian thing means not making waves. There are lots of good reasons to change churches. Maybe a few good reasons to change churches. There's lots of bad reasons. And that's a bad reason. But it happens all the time. Ah, this thing is just too sticky and too complicated and I don't want to do the unchristian thing by making waves. That's the thought. I don't like conflict or want conflict and Jesus wouldn't want that either. You need to read your Gospels if you think Jesus is avoiding conflict. Passage after passage in John where there's a division among them. They're trying to stone him. They're trying to murder him. They eventually crucify him. Please read your Bibles. If your program is to avoid conflict, you're you're not going to be walking in great and beautiful opportunities to apply the Gospel and to be the church. The thought might be, I'll just divorce these relationships until I find a place in a church where people won't sin against me. (laughs) Good luck. You're going to be looking for a long time because it's not going to happen. What you see here in this passage, though, is what should be characteristic of the church, a responsibility to go and tell the person that sinned against you, not to go and tell someone else. Happens to me all the time. People say, hey, man, this person did it to me, and um, what do you think? I said, well, what do you want me to do about it? You want me to go talk to them? And you think they're not going to feel tattled on? You think because I'm the pastor or one of the pastors here that I took a class at seminary on how to resolve conflict without you having to get your hands dirty in it? (laughs) There's no such class. Look at the, 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 the anatomy of it here. The person sins against you. And in the church, what the church is characteristic of is they go and tell that person, the offender. And the church is the assembly. Here, you want to understand what membership is and what church is? Church is the assembly of the confessors that don't walk away from messy stuff, but instead go and tell, hoping to gain their brother and keep their brother through just a life of that. Not being nitpickers with one another. Overlooking tons of offenses. But for those occasions when something is worse than overlookable. Dealing with it. You have the goods. It's called the gospel. You have the goods to repent. You ought to be practiced at it. You have the goods to confess. We ought to be good at that. And you have the goods to apply forgiveness. You have the goods in that too. Because God's have been applied toward you. Man, the church ought to be the best in the world at walking through hard and sticky stuff. But the church, sadly, not this church. The church, sadly, bails on a lot of those things and hops from church to church or out of church altogether because it's hard and it's difficult. Church membership is a way of saying, I submit to this. Simply, I submit to this. Here's my version of what it is for me. Because I was part and parcel to us clearly communicating this to our church family early on. I mean, I I wasn't part and parcel to it. I was part of it. I was part of this development. Are we going to do this? Can we possibly pull this off without people just leaving? Without people running away from us if they hear that we're going to walk through church discipline matters? I said, well, let's do it. The Bible says it. Matthew 18 says we should do it. So let's do it and just see what happens. So here's my version of it. I hope and pray I never need church discipline administered and applied toward me. And maybe those advanced steps. Okay? I hope and pray that I never need it. But I submit to others being involved in my life in a way that if I'm blinded by my sin... Others will love me enough and love Jesus enough to approach me, confront me, and even possibly do the hardest thing in the world of removing me from the congregation in hopes that the sting and pain of isolation will lead me to repent, to repentance. That's my personal version. I'm gonna read it to you again because this is just sharing confession and testimony. I hope and pray I never need those advanced steps of church discipline. It happens all the time in the, in the lower steps, all the time, where I offend people. It, the, the more you open your mouth, you're going to offend people, and I'm usually the guy that's talking. So this is an invitation. If I've offended you in something that I've said today or in the past, give me a chance to say I'm sorry. I can handle that. Chances are it was not intended, and if it was intended, I'd especially need to say I'm sorry. That, that should happen all the time, not just between the preacher and the congregation, but between one another because we're going we're gonna to have offenses that aren't overlookable at times. Okay? Those lower steps should happen all the time. But if a higher step should happen, here's my version. I hope and pray that that never happens, but I submit to others being involved in my life in a way that if I'm blinded by my sin, others will love me enough and Jesus enough to approach me, confront me, and even possibly do the hardest thing in the world of removing me from the congregation in hopes that the sting and pain of isolation will lead me to repentance. And that's why here's why it's my version. Because there's too much at stake for this not to happen, for me sub- to not submit to this. Forget my reputation. People are afraid to submit to this because their reputation is at stake. My reputation is, is going to die when I die. <laughs> or shortly thereafter. Might be remembered by a handful of people. But what takes place, what we're talking about here are eternal matters. Remember? Keys of an eternal kingdom given to the church. Man, here's what church discipline is at its heart. Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. And that's what it's like for you if you're going it alone, not part of a church that's saying, I'm inviting this sort of accountability and I want to be part of this sort of accountability in your life. Woe to you. Keep going it alone. Woe is what's in store for you. Because when you fall, there won't, be there, someone, there won't be someone there to help you up. This is the spirit of accountability of the assembly of the, of the called. Two are better than one, man. I want to be part of your life. Not in some ugly, busybody way, but in a way that cares about you. In a way that you care about me. In staff meeting this week, we had a time of recounting where the staff shared some things and a lot of things that we can't share by name when it comes to this matter because it is a little bit sticky. But these things were shared at least that there are real successes in this body right now where many are turning from pornography because two are better than one and because one has fallen down and there are others there to help them up. To God be the glory, right? Maybe some marriages salvaged there. Some faith salvaged. There are small accountability groups in this body that are walking through hard things and it's unimaginable that they could be dealt with alone. And here's another example of one that's not, not dealing with some sort of sin matter but is just dealing in an accountable way with the difficulties of life. Ashley Kelso in the spirit of meaningful accountability has rallied some moms to come alongside new moms in their struggles dealing with the weeks and months after a baby's born which can be profoundly difficult for some moms a lot of moms that's the that's that's this accountability in a way that man how could we do life with any other in any other way the church is an accountable people because there's too much at stake not to be the third thing is in Acts chapter 4. Turn there. Acts chapter 4. As you're turning there, I'm going to read chapter 5, verse 11, so you know who we're talking about. And then I'm going to give you a little bit of context. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, some context. From Back from Matthew 16 and 18, we're fast-forwarding all the way over here um, through the rest of Christ's earthly ministry. He's finished His ministry. He's gone to the cross. He's risen. He's ascended to the Father's right hand. Pentecost has come by this point, and the church has been born in thousands. Thousands were added to their number, or were added to the assembly of the called, if we want to keep using that kind of language. Thousands joined Peter in saying, You are the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. Some span of time has passed, likely brief, where we find the assembly of the uh, here again we find the assembly of the called. And I'm gonna begin in chapter four, verse thirty-two. Let's see what these guys are up to. This assembly of the confessors, assembly of the called. Now the full number of those who believed were one heart and soul. Thus, Joseph, okay, this is like a real dude. Just want to make sure you know we're talking about a real guy now, a guy named Joseph. Okay, real dude named Joseph. He's also called Barnabas. It's a nickname. Joseph, who's also called by the apostles apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field, a real field. Okay, we're not talking figurative. We're not talking about a figurative guy. We're not talking about a made-up guy. We're talking about a real guy named Joseph. Sold a real field that belonged to him. And he brought real money. <laughs> like real, like made, not, not monopoly money. But like real money. And he laid it at the apostles' real feet. Okay? And then after this, there's this crazy story of Ananias and Sapphira who also sold a field but kept some, kept some of the proceeds for themselves. Lying to the Holy Spirit and lying to, to the, the leadership of the church. And they dropped stone cold dead. And then it was in verse 11. The great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Okay, a few, a few observations. First of all, they're like-minded to the point of having corporately, the language here says, one heart and one soul. It says that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. That's like Scandalous sort of language. I mean, think about that for a minute. And they had everything in common. And also, we can see from the passage that there's great power and great grace as the testimony of the resurrection of Christ. There it is, the gospel. Resurrection of Christ went forth. And here's the, the, just the phrase that, that just I love about this passage. There's no needy people among them. The church. The third showing up of the church. The third use of the word... In our New Testaments. And there's no needy people among them. And here's how and why. Because people actually got rid of stuff in order to meet the needs of others within the assembly of the called. Isn't that crazy? That's like otherworldly. That's like when people hear about stuff like that happening in a church, in a community, they would go, man, those guys are different. That's crazy. Rather than amassing wealth and hoarding, they're actually getting rid of stuff. So that they can meet each other's needs? That's awesome. Then they brought the proceeds of the church, or proceeds to the church leadership to distribute as anyone had need. And just to remind you, a guy named Joseph, real name, sold a real field, sold it for real money, and gave it to the apostles for other real people with real needs. And then there's real Ananias and Sapphira. And their death suggests that this is a massive responsibility to tend to each other faithfully. Church is an attentive body of believers, an attentive assembly, attentive to one another and responsible to one another. There have been people in this body in the last few years that have made decisions about what they drive or what they don't drive so they could help others within the body or help others when needs came up. They've made decisions about either driving less car or driving less cars so that they can actually meet other people's needs. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? Isn't that just scandalous? That's the way things ought to be. People simplifying for the sake of being more able to help other people's needs. That should be characteristic of the church. That's happened among us. I'll tell you this too, just a little, a little testimony. As a husband to a team member that's going on the Munich trip and a father to two team members who's going on the Munich trip to the tune of $3,300, $3,300, and $3,300, that's $9,900 for one family to shoulder. That scared me to death. As a husband and a father, and then as a pastor, to put that in front of our body where there's three plus five, five other members, eight total members, to the tune of $3,300 a person, we put in front of our body just a few months ago, and it's covered. (laughs) And it's covered by a lot of hard work. This team worked really hard, but they weren't by themselves because some of you came out and cut wood, giving up a Saturday, having everything in common, including a call to Munich. Having everything in common, though it wasn't your biological child going, you was your covenant child going, so you're going. Man, that's something to testify to. That's something to enjoy. People giving up their time to help clearing land. And we still owe some land cleared, by the way, I think. One job that says, yet undone. But man, people moved in a way that is worth recounting and worth enjoying having everything in common, including a call to Munich. Something that's happened in this last few months that I've found out about that's actually kind of funny and I probably shouldn't share with everybody because it might really mess it all up. There's a group of ladies that got together and cooked and froze a bunch of meals for anybody that might have needs. And they labeled them and told even the ingredients that are on them for people that have different gluten issues or whatever. And they put them in a freezer out there in the treehouse so that they're poised and ready for, for anybody anytime they have a need. It's been tempting some nights for me to go in there and grab something and say, hey, baby, I got, I got dinner covered. But that's pretty cool. And that's, just, that's like taking it to a whole other level of what we've been doing for years where anybody has a need, anybody's had a baby, been born or whatever, these meals just show up because we have everything in common, a body that's poised and ready and attentive to one another. My parents moved out of our house that we grew up in, that I grew up in. Lived there for 40 years recently. In the meantime, we've been part of a church. My family's been part of this very same church for that 40 40 plus years. When my parents, who are in their 70s, moved out of our old house, I thought, well, they'll probably need some of our help, but they'll, they'll need my help some, Christy's help some, my brother's help, but they've got the church. Well, we've come to find out that not a single time, not a single person from a single from decades worth of involvement in the local body has their church come to help. If that happened in this church, somebody would be getting hurt. When people move in this church, and if they don't tell others about it, those are the ones that are getting hurt. That's what I'm telling you. Like Somebody's going to hurt you if you have a need like that, and you don't present that to your life group, and you don't present that to the rest of the church because the church comes out in force. We were moving somebody yesterday. And this guy, this helper fixer was fixing something. He would put up a bunch of stuff in their house and uh, ceiling fans, stuff like that. He's working on plumbing and he turns around and you know the, they, they introduced me to him. And I was like, yeah, good to meet you. He said, yeah, we need to find out who, you, who, who your moving team is. so We can get this name out. And I said, it's called the church. <laughs> <laughs> the church. Man, I love that. That's having everything in common. That's having needs in common. The church has everything in common, and there's not a needy person among us. Do you realize that's evangelism? That's evangelism in a community where they see, well, wait a second. does that what it mean to be? Is that what it means to be part of a church? Well, why wouldn't I want to be part of a church where people have each other's backs like that, where people care for each other in an otherworldly way? What are they holding on to? See, it invites them to what, what's uniting us this risen lord and the gospel of christ the last thing i'll be very brief turn to acts chapter 11 y'all have been very attentive this morning acts chapter 9 beginning in or excuse me acts chapter 11 beginning in verse 19 i i almost left this section off because i feel like listening wise i like to think in terms of currency i feel like i've i've drawn enough from you this morning I've spent enough listening, and, listening currency, and I was kind of like, I'm not sure I want to have a fourth point. Besides the Trinity, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so you can really only have three points. <laughs> but I thought, you know what, this one's too good, and I'll just be brief, but it's just too good to pass up. So hang with me for this one. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. I'll give you a little bit of context before I read this passage. The assembly of the called, by the time we get to chapter 11, is facing severe persecution. Okay, we're fast forwarding from chapters 4 and 5, where we just were, to chapter 11, and they're facing severe persecution by this point, to the point of scattering the believers all over the Roman Empire. Sounds bad, right? But it turns out God actually works all things together for good, including persecution. And in the scattering of these believers from Jerusalem out across the Roman Empire, guess what went with them? The gospel, <laughs> the good news and a desire to go and be salt and light wherever they went. So God used his persecution and even martyrdom for good. And with those confessors went a confession and a testimony to Christ, and the gates of hell, turns out, can't and won't prevail against the advancing church. So verse 19, "...now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews." But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, or the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and the church sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them. This may have been the same Barney, too, that sold his field. He's all freed up because he sold his field. He can go be agile and mobile wherever he needs to be sent now. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Just a few brief observations. First of all, there's a work abroad that's reportable to the church in Jerusalem. You see where the report is going? It's going to the people in Jerusalem, and it appears that the work and what's happening out there is tethered to the church, as it should be, accountable even. And there's an assembly there that considers what they're hearing about what's taking place abroad. And that assembly of the called, or the church as we know it, has real people that sends out real guys named... Barnabas, who goes to Antioch to examine and exhort the scattered. And many people were added to their numbers, and the kingdom advanced. The church is an assembly of the called that's mindful of work near and abroad. And we, like the church in Jerusalem right here, send people out all the time. We send them into daily and local works, and we send them into foreign and sometimes occasional works. But the church together considers, listen to this, considers who's sendable, like in this case, Barnabas, and the church then sends them. Is our live stream on right now? Ten families, some of which have walked with us nearly since the beginning, deployed to be part of a work, a new church in Rockwall, because that's what the church does. It sends it sends out into foreign works, it sends out into local works, and it sends out into daily and weekly works. Every Sunday at noon, you may not realize this, but I think Crossmont probably does, you're sent. You're sent into Rafa. You're sent into the school board that you're serving on. You're sent into the city council to be salt and light, to be a guy on the city council that says that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. That's what you're called to do. You're sent out into fish ministry. You're sent out into casa. You're sent out into serve at the Father's house. You're sent out into Trace Diaz. You're sent out into something that has been a profound ministry in the life of our church, into this adoption and foster ministry. You're sent out to, to coach soccer. As somebody, a coach that confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. You're sent out into these even stardusters. I, I didn't think I would ever even say the word from... From up here with Stardusters, I saw my wife and Christy Cardwell serving together in Stardusters. I thought, man, they're ambassadors of salt and light, even at Stardusters. You're sent out to be homeroom moms who are confessing that Jesus is the Christ. You're sent out to be on the PTA. We have people at Crosspoint that are police officers. They work at hospitals. We have firemen. uh, We have teachers. We have counselors. We have diagnosticians. And we have a really, really cute physical therapist among us. You're sent out to be salt and light confessors that Jesus is the Christ. You're sent at noon every Sunday. And then also, we could add to the list there of the many moms and dads that are taking their calls seriously to be salt and light in their den, in their kitchen, in their living room. The church is the assembly of the called and the sent. Four things I wanted to consider this morning because we live in a context that's greatly devalued the gathering of the called to the point of practicing what we, what I thought was a novel term, churchless Christianity. Evangelism for us is just being the church as it was on the pages of our Bibles. And man, I want to affirm you, Crosspoint family, y'all are moving well in this. We're the assembly of the called with a shared confession Jesus is the Christ the Son of the God, the living one. We're accountable because there's too much at stake not to be. We have everything in common, and there's not a needy person among us. And we're the assembly of the called who are also sent into Monday every week. Let me pray. God, what an affirming, encouraging time. Just to look at these just glimpses, these snapshots of what the church means and what it's supposed to be doing and who it's supposed to be, Lord. I'm so encouraged at what you have done in this body in the last 11 years since we constituted as a church in the last 10 years since we've renewed every year. God, we give you all the glory and we confess and we know full well that we are far from arrived and there's so much growth yet to do. God, we pray that you will continue to do among us in the next 10 what you've been doing in the last. We are thankful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.